Heavenly Father, we just sang this morning that in my Father's house there's a place for me. And how grateful we are. In fact, eternally grateful that that is true. And how neat that we'll be talking about a house this morning, a place for us that you're preparing. And we want you to be exalted this morning. And Holy Spirit, please speak through me to build your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you could put the video up first, David. Amen. One of the most iconic scenes in all of Hollywood. No. No, 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 no. no. Lindsay, do you know who that lady is? Anybody not know who that is? Oh, but you, oh Doug Carol's dying. That's Marilyn Monroe, okay? <laughs> I thought for sure I could get by it because it's you know, a little bit an older congregation, so that's why I picked on Brian. But everyone kind of knows who Marilyn Monroe was. And can anyone tell me the name of uh, the song? Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Well, you guys knew that one. All those female voices, too. They all just shot out. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. It was written by Etta James in 1951. Bonus point, anyone tell me what year this movie came out? 1953. Mm -hmm. Written in 1951, this performance uh, by Marilyn Monroe, it popularized the song. And, of course, it became synonymous uh, with luxurious indulgence and the allure of diamonds. This is how it was generally received, but this is so interesting, is that um, if you actually listen to the words of the song written by Etta James, uh, the lyrics challenge that message about, of materialism, that diamonds alone can create happiness. That obviously isn't true. 
and the song suggests that true love and emotional connection are often overlooked in the pursuit of material wealth. And so this song ultimately serves as a commentary on the shallowness of society's obsession uh, with wealth and luxury. True harmony, true satisfaction comes way beyond that. However, that being said, I know of no woman who would turn down a diamond. You would, huh? You don't wear any. Okay. What would you say? She's given them. Okay. Most women don't turn down jewels or, or a diamond. Okay. And my wife reminded me of that this past holiday season. She said that she likes things that sparkle. In a small box, uh, little things like that that she was joking about uh, throughout the holiday season. Needless to say, she got shoes for Christmas. So, I believe, though, this same sentiment uh, holds true for our idea of heaven. We think that, that life is really good. If I have these diamonds, I'll be happy. And it just kind of doesn't really meet up to that standard that we kind of hope that heaven is like a diamond ring in many ways. But fear, it's just like a pair of shoes, you know? And as we've been learning in our Sunday school class, we really don't know a whole lot about heaven, do we? We don't think a whole lot about it. But as we continue our series on the end times, and thankfully for some of you, we're nearing the end, we have described what the new heaven and new earth will be like. And now we're going to look at what's called the capital city of the new heaven and the new earth. It's called the new Jerusalem. And it's our home. It's where we'll be staying. Uh, But before we take a deeper look at this, I want to answer a question that will tie into uh, this uh, new Jerusalem. And it's this question right here. What is Jesus doing in heaven? Like right now, what is he doing? Okay. Generally speaking, he's doing three things. The first one is this, he is waiting. Now what is he waiting for? Hebrews 10, 12, and 13. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time forward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. So he's waiting. He's also doing this. He is praying. He was raised, Romans 8, 34. He's at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. So he's not just sitting around, okay? You don't want to guess what the third thing he's doing, generally speaking? Yeah. He's building. Let me take a moment just to define this more for us. Now, there are many terms for heaven, okay? Just the word heaven. When Jesus left the earth, the scriptures tell us he ascended to heaven. That's Acts 1.11. He also told the thief dying on the cross next to him, he would be with him where? Which is, of course, a reference to heaven. Luke 23.43. Paul called heaven what? Remember this from last week? The dwelling place of God. He called it the third heaven. Right? 2 Corinthians 12.2. 
the writer of Hebrews said this about heaven. This is Hebrews uh, 12, 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Now, when Jesus left the earth, he ascended to heaven. He also ascended to paradise. He ascended to the third heaven. Okay. And who was waiting for him there? Well, we know that the Father was there. The spirit of the saints from the Old and New Testament were there and are there. And countless holy angels. But he also went to a city. He went to a city. Again, but you have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Okay? Now, what exactly is this heavenly Jerusalem? But once again, we'll go back to the writer of Hebrews for more insight. Do you remember when Abraham was walking by faith? And in chapter 11, that's the chapter of faith, uh, it describes what he did. It said that Abraham, you'll find out, lived with what we call an eternal perspective. Hebrews 11.10 says this, He was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Okay? So when Jesus ascended to heaven, the Father was there. The spirit of all the Old and New Testament believers were there. The holy angels were there. And the city was there. And now we know that this city was designed and built by God. The Apostle John explains even more about this city to us in John 14, 2, for three, two and 3. Recognizes from the song, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So the heavenly Jerusalem, the city designed and built by God, is also called the Father's house. Okay? And it's a house that's made up of many rooms. Now think about this, that Jesus himself is personally preparing for each of his brothers and sisters. So, in Revelation, John reveals even more about this heavenly city. This is verses uh, 2 and 3 of Revelation 21. It says this, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. It's in this verse called a holy city, or a new Jerusalem. For eventually God will live among his people in the new heaven and the new earth, in this new city called the new Jerusalem. My point is this, we are trained to think that when a person dies, right, where do they go? Heaven, right? 
the place where God dwells. But I want you to see now that heaven could also, or is also called paradise. So it's, it's biblically accurate to say that when I die, I will go to where? Paradise. When I die, I will go to the third heaven. When I die, I will go to the new Jerusalem. When I die, I will go to the heavenly Jerusalem. Okay? We don't think that way, do we? We don't. Now, since heaven consists of a city called the heavenly Jerusalem, or the new Jerusalem, or the Father's house, again, it's biblical to say that heaven can also be called the heavenly Jerusalem, or the new Jerusalem, or the Father's house. I like that. When I die, I'm going to go to my Father's house. Specifically, where am I going to go? And specifically, where are you going to go? To your own room in the Father's house. Okay? Now, be way far away from mine because mine's right next to God's. But you can visit me, okay? But you get the idea here, right? This is a little more details and specificity of what awaits us. It's part of the hope that we have. So not only is Jesus currently waiting for his enemies to be defeated, praying for the church, he's also building a city. Because the new Jerusalem is designed and built by who? He's God, Jesus, yeah. And we think it's being built because what's he doing right now? Preparing a room for his brothers and sisters. That's why I say he's building, okay? He's building a city and preparing a room. And when time ends and the eternal state begins and the new heaven and the new earth appear, then the new Jerusalem, and what's the name of that city? It's called the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, okay? It's going to be the capital city of the new uh, heaven and new earth. It's a city designed and built by God in heaven, It descends from heaven and is placed, we think, at the center of the new heaven and the new earth. And there, we will live with God forever. So if you're a country person, get over it. You're going to be living in a city. All right? I thought, okay, well, since this is where we're spending eternity, let's familiarize ourselves with our new home. Does that sound good? Does that sound good or, or, okay, you don't, all right. So what the scriptures do is they give us what I call a bird's eye view. Now get in your Bibles and turn to Revelation 21. We'll get to these verses this morning, verses 9 through 21. So when I said to my, my, my mother before she passed, <clears throat> I'm jealous of you because you're going home. It, it, that's how it is. That's biblical. There's a, I don't know, <clears throat> we'll get into it, but if there's an actual house in the new Jerusalem, or if the new Jerusalem is the house, okay, but that's our home. And that's where we'll dwell forever in the presence of God. 
Okay, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And there it is again, the bride. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city. Here it is again, Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. There is amazing detail here, that, and you should get really excited about this, okay? Now, first, there's a unique name is given to this city. It's called a bride, okay? The wife of the lamb. Now, why? And this is interesting, when you, and I studied this, because it draws its character from its occupants or its inhabitants. In other words, we explain it this way. The people of God, the church, have been made eternally holy guess what? The city can be then called a holy city. If you believe in a thousand-year millennial reign, that Jerusalem was considered holy because of the presence of Jesus Christ, okay? Jerusalem as it exists today is still considered holy. Why is that? Because God decreed it. It was a holy city. Does that make sense? So you have the city called Jerusalem today, declared holy by God's decree. You have a city, if there is a thousand-year reign, that's holy because of the presence of Jesus Christ. And now, the new Jerusalem is holy because we live there, and we are with God, and we've been made holy. And since the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem, we are forever united to God and the Lamb, that union is so intimate, it's like the union of a husband and a wife. The people are called the bride. You will get to know God, experience God, in far more intimate ways than we ever can in this life. So it's called a bride, and that's why it's called a bride. Now it says next that John is carried away in the spirit. What does that mean? Whoever knows what that means, right? That was a joke because no one knows what it means, okay? <laughs> what we think it means is that physically, obviously, we know where, by the way, do you know where John is when he has this revelation from Jesus? He's on to Patmos, right? Yep. I think somehow he was transported spiritually by means of a vision to see spiritual realities, and he's taken to a great and high mountain, it reads. And he watches the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which is, of course, heaven, Literally, heaven comes to earth, um, coming down out of heaven from God. This city, by the way, the new Jerusalem, it is in existence now. It's being built, if I understand it correctly. But it's in existence now, eternally in heaven. So God's created a new heaven and a new earth in the sense of a created universe, and descending into that created universe is an already eternally existing dwelling place that has always been the home of God and the home of the redeemed and of the holy angels. Now, the first description we have of it, and this is fascinating, is that of this home is that it has the glory of God. And this is the most distinguishing characteristic of the New Jerusalem. Okay? So in other words, it's safe for us to say then that when we die, 
our spirits go where? To heaven, to the city of New Jerusalem, into the presence of God, into his glory. You see that? Heaven now and in the future New Jerusalem has the full expression of the glory of God displayed. And his glory is unlimited, it is unhindered. And here is where the glory of God is flashing from that city throughout all eternity. So, as the city comes down, this bright light, if you want to call it that, the glory of God, fiery bright light is just shooting out everywhere. Okay? Now, obviously, what is God's glory? Since God is invisible, he clothes himself with what? Light. Exactly. A fiery, blazing light. And what we'll learn is that God himself is the light of the city that fills, now hear this, all the new heaven and the new earth as it calls attention to his majesty and wonder. And John makes an attempt to describe this light for us. He writes that her brilliance was like a costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Now we know that brilliance refers back to the light of God's glory, but the word John uses here for describe it is the Greek word called phoster, and it means something in which light is concentrated and from which light radiates. And the best way for me to describe this for you, of what John is writing here, is to say that what John is seeing is something like this. Everyone see that? What is that? A light bulb. Okay. What's in the center of the light bulb? Filament. What's the filament doing? It's been electric, electrified, and it's giving off light, and it's bright, and out from the center of that light bulb comes light, right? You follow me so far? That's sort of, as we can understand, on a, a fraction of scale, what John is seeing. Now, in the center of a light bulb, obviously, is a filament that, when electrified, shines brightly, filling a room with its light. So John sees this city like, a, in a sense, a light bulb, where light is just pouring out of it. Only it comes not through some thin film of plain glass. Here's the key. Because you, you can kind of see the glass in here, right? All this stuff right here. It's not coming through some thin film of plain glass, but through what appears to him to be, as the text says, a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. And here is where understanding the historical context really helps us understand what John is seeing. Do you ever know what modern jasper looks like? It looks like this. That is a picture of clear jasper. So it's very opaque. Okay? But what John describes the city as what? Crystal clear jasper. Now, both the Greek and Hebrew words for jasper indicate that the stone, now here it is, and you probably will remember this, it's not crystal clear jasper, but a diamond. A crystal clear diamond, that's what the words really mean. Thus, the introduction as to diamonds are a girl's best friend. Now, I don't know much about diamonds until my wife and I went shopping for an engagement ring. It was during the time I was introduced to the four C's of diamonds. Anyone know those? 
Anybody want to guess? Cut, clarity, color, and carrot. Okay. A diamond's cut determines how well the diamond captures and refracts light. Did you know that? Well-cut diamonds are extremely brilliant, fiery, and desirable. A diamond's clarity refers to the presence of impurities on and within the stone. And you want the clearest diamond you can afford, right? As for a diamond color, you want a colorless diamond, the most rare and most valuable diamond. And a diamond's carat refers to not its size, but rather its weight. High-quality diamonds with a high carat are very valuable. Now, knowing this, finding a diamond that meets the highest standards of cut, clarity, and color and carat, they're astronomically expensive and extremely rare. In fact, you would call that a perfect gem. And this is the idea behind the phrase crystal clear jasper. We're talking about a perfect gem, a perfect diamond. Not with light, by the way, shining on it, but with light shining from where? Inside. And refracting its rainbow colors all over the new heavens and the new earth. So the city is like one massive, perfect diamond gem. So Colette, you better start liking diamonds because that's where you're going to be living. Okay, you can live in one, but you don't want to wear it. All right, I got that. So we're talking about one massive, and we'll get into this in a moment here, perfect diamond gem, but it's flashing the reflection of God's glory in infinite light. And so what we're really looking at is the ultimate light show, is what John is seeing. And why would I say that? Because all of eternity then becomes bathed in the radiating splendor of God in his glory. And it would be, it's going to be rem- remarkable to behold and to see it. Now, the four C's of a diamond, what stands out to me is the carrot. Because this is one massive, perfect gem. Folks, it is 1,500 miles cubed. 1,500 miles cubed. Now, try and picture in your mind a perfect diamond gem of that size, all right? And the glory of God shining out from the center, sending its rainbow colors all over the new heavens and the new earth. It's simply unbelievable. Now, let's take a closer look at the capital city called the New Jerusalem, our home, from an exterior perspective. Verse 12 through 14, it has a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and names are written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So John has gotten a bird's eye view from high above, of this blazing diamond, and now he goes to describe the exterior of the city. And the first thing you notice is its perfect symmetry. Apparently, God is a fan of balance and order, okay? And that ought to make all the obsessive-compulsive people here this morning feel good. 
about keeping an orderly house, right? We're making sure that the peas don't roll over into the mashed potatoes. We can't have them touch each other, can we? And the mashed potatoes don't spill over to the chicken. Everything has its place and is nice and orderly, and that's probably the perfect place for the OCD person. You can finally rest. Everything is in its place, and you can just chill. Okay, all our ladies here are shaking their head. That's probably going to be your primary motivation. I can't wait to get out of this uncontrolled world. It's just going to be everything perfect and orderly, and I can rest, God. Thank you. Perfect symmetry. Now, uh, John begins by saying it had a great and high wall. And so immediately we see that this is a, a city with dimensions. The outer wall means it has limits. It also has 12 gates. And gates are for letting people in and out. And we'll find out later that it is the purpose of the gates to let people in and out because these gates never close. They never close. And at the gates, there are 12 angels. Now, why are they there and what are they doing? But one thing for sure is uh, the angels aren't there to guard the city. There is no fear of an attack from another invading power. So why are they there? My best guess, taken from Hebrews 1.14, believe it or not, that says this about angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service, now watch this, for the sake of those who inherit salvation? In heaven, who do the angels serve? Us. Okay. So I think possibly... I'm guessing here a little bit, that they're there to welcome us in and welcome us out. On our way out, maybe to explore the new heaven and the new earth, if that's what we're able to do. If that's the case, they might say, well, have a nice trip, or might say, welcome home when we come home. Now, in addition to that, verse 12, uh, back to Revelation, says that each gate had a name written on it. That each of those names was taken from one of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, and verse 13 continues with, the, again, the symmetry. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now, if you know your Old Testament, this description reminds you of what? This is the way God organized in the desert the tabernacle. God put the tabernacle in the middle and had three tribes on each side. So it's no surprise that the New Jerusalem is designed this way. Because the writer of Hebrews again reminds us in Hebrews 8, verses 1 and 2 and 5 and 6. He says, now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's Jesus. He's there now. He says, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. In other words... That tabernacle, that picture there was actually pitched by man. But in having the true tabernacle, that city, the New Jerusalem, is built not by man, but by who? God. He pitched the tent. He did the work. And the true tabernacle is where God now dwells among men in the New Jerusalem. It's pitched by the Lord, not man. It's a city designed and built by God. In the Old Testament tabernacle and the priest, it says of this, serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. This is a shadow, this right here, of the heavenly city, in a sense. 
Okay? Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect or build the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. <coughs> now, let's go back to the gates of the uh, New Jerusalem. Each of the gates has a name of one of the sons of the tribe of Israel, with three gates on each side. Now, theologians believe it is designed this way to celebrate for all eternity God's unique covenant relationship with Israel. And then verse 14, it says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So now you get down to the foundation stones, and there are twelve of those, and we can assume that they're probably under the three gates on each of the sides. And you can imagine it this way. At the top of the gate, you have the tribe of Israel. Okay? The top of the gate. At the bottom of the gate, on the foundation stone, you have the name of one of the twelve apostles. Why? Again, probably to celebrate God's wonderful covenant relationship with the church. So he's celebrating his covenant with Israel and with the church. Now the apostles of the church being the foundation of the church according to Ephesians 2, 19 to 20. And so the design of the city shows God's favor on those under the old covenant and God's favor on those under the new covenant. And continuing, we learn something else about this city. That's verses 15 and 16, and that it's a square. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. The measuring rod, uh, just so you know, it was a reed. You know what a reed is, like a plant? It's about 10 feet in length. But this is not a reed, it's, uh, it's gold. And the fact that the angel was measuring the city implies, and this is all throughout the Bible, I just didn't take the time to develop it, God's ownership, he owns this, okay? It's like when you would plot out the lines of your own property, this is what the angel is doing, measuring God's possessions. The city is a square or a four square, all sides and angles are equal, its length is as great as its width and height. And the measurements come in as 1,500 miles in length, 1,500 miles in width, and 1,500 miles in height. Height, excuse me. So just how big is this city? Well, to give you some perspective, the distance would be from the tip of Florida to the tip of Maine. Okay? From Maine over to North Dakota, from North Dakota down to Florida, here you go. Yeah, and then from Florida, or Texas over to Florida. And that's just, you're looking at one line, it goes 1,500 miles up. Yeah, to see your faces is so funny, I wish I had a camera for you guys to see all this. You're like, <clears throat> okay, so it's, it's roughly half or over half of the United States. It, it was a pain figuring this out, by the way, because if you go from here to say, you know, over to here, 
it's like 1,537 miles, but you got to go all the way down. It's not a straight line, so I just kind of guess because this is all supposed to be kind of equal. But you get the idea here. I know Dr. Henry Morris did the measurements. That gives you a visual of this city. That's, by the way, folks, again, that's your inheritance. Okay? Yeah, I didn't keep Washington. It didn't, California didn't make it. Washington didn't make it, so. Although, if there's any country that would be God's country, it's probably Montana because it's so beautiful out there. But then again, also Washington State is, is, is beautiful too. They rival each other in many ways, so. Okay. How many people do you think that can hold? Well, again, the scientist Dr. Henry Morris, a Christian, estimates that in all of human history, this is an estimation, by the way, that 100 billion people have lived. Do you remember how many we thought lived during the time of the first society? About 10 million people, we thought, were there. 10 billion people, 10 billion people, because they lived so long. Now, if 20% or 20 billion of the 100 billion were believers, if you take that number, then Dr. Morris calculated that the average space assigned to each person, you ready for this, <coughs> would be one over 30 cubic miles. And this would correspond to a cubicle block with about 75 acres on each block. Because again, it's going up what? 1,500 miles. So you can't really see the height in this, obviously. And also keep in mind, I think that we'll be able to travel vertically as well as horizontally. And so if you think of that, streets will also be what? Horizontal and vertical. Okay? So if you take that square and just, you know, do this, divide it all off and so on, and it goes up like that, and one of those blocks is about 75 acres at those estimates for 20 billion people. Uh, F.W. Borum, a, a pastor from years ago, he calculated 1,500 cubed to be 2,250,000 square miles. That's 15,000 times as big as London. The length of every street in the new Jerusalem, which is also called what? Heaven, which is also called what? The city of God, it's also called what? The Father's house. The third, all that, okay? The length of every street would be one-fifth the diameter of the earth right now. So is there enough room for everybody? Oh yeah. Verses 17 and 18, and he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements, and the material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. Now, this measurement refers to the width of the walls. It is 72 yards that's 216 feet. For those of you that are going to watch football today, that is almost three-quarters of a football field, which is 75 yards. It's just shy of that. 
at 72 yards wide. Okay? And I think that these measurements are actually to be taken literally, not figuratively, because John writes that human measurements and angelic measurements are the same. So I think the wall is precisely 72 yards wide. Now the wall is made out of jasper. Now we know what that is. What is jasper? A diamond. The walls are made out of diamonds. So no wonder when John saw it, he thought he was seeing a diamond, right? So we're looking at one big, massive, cubed diamond. This is a city was pure gold like clear glass. Gold is, is not pure, is it? It's opaque. It's not clear like glass. So this is a different kind of gold, translucent gold. And it's clear for one reason, really, because the city has one great purpose in the new heaven and the new earth, which is what? To radiate the glory of God. Because what's in the center? The glory of God, the light. And it's shooting out throughout this 1,500-mile wide, shooting out the glory of God. And it, that glory is then filling the entire, I believe, the new heaven and the new earth. Now, why I say it's the entire universe, the new heaven and the earth, because what does the Scripture say? God wants his glory to fill the entire earth even now, right? That's why we exist, to glorify God. So the brilliant, flashing <coughs> color of transparent gold it lends the firing of the glory of God through every component. And let's finish by looking at the foundation and the gates. Verse 19, the foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. Now the stones and their colors, just so you know, I put them up there for you. We'll fly through this real quickly. You can see you got a crystal clear diamond, you got a brilliant blue, a sky blue, a green, a red and white stone. Obviously, God is American. That was a bad joke, okay? A red stone from the quartz family. You got a yellow-toned stone. A sea-green collar. It's kind of like the Seahawks collars, right? A transparent yellow-green. A shade of green. A brilliant violet and purple. Okay? So now what you have is a blazing collection of these brilliant colors that the light of God's glory does What? shines through as they make up the foundation of the heavenly city. The light of the gold, the diamond, the transparent city shining through the diamond walls, pushing its light through all of these colors, all these colored jewels. It forms a scene of dazzling beauty. That's kind of cool, isn't it? Finally, the gates. Verse 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls, and each of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Now these pearl gates run the full height of the city, and what's the height of the city? 
What's the height of the city? 1,500 miles. Now the question, of course, is, and we'll close with this, why are the gates pearl? Well, I think it's this. Uh, the theologian John Phillips writes this. <clears throat> All other precious gems, and mentioned here in Revelation 21, are metals or stones. But a pearl is a gem formed within what? The oyster. It is the only one formed by living flesh in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the humble oyster receives an irritation or a wound, and around the wound, the oyster builds a pearl. I did not know that. Did you? The pearl, we might say, is the answer to the oyster to that which injured it. And the glory landing is God's answer in Christ to the wicked men who crucified heaven's beloved and put him to open shame. How like God it is to make the gates of the new Jerusalem pearls. The saints, as they come and go, will be forever reminded as they pass through the gates of glory that access to God's home is only because of what happened at Calvary. Think of the size of those gates, he writes. What gigantic suffering is symbolized by these gates of pearl? Throughout the endless ages, we shall be reminded by those pearly gates of the immensity of the sufferings of Christ. Those pearls hung eternally, as it were, at the access routes to glory will remind us forever of one who hung upon a tree and whose answer to those who injured him was to invite them to forever share his home. Heaven is entered through suffering by a wounded redeemer. And so, that is the Father's house. That is the city that Abraham was looking forward to. That is our inheritance. Okay? Now, gauging by the stunned looks and the silence on your faces, I hope you're feeling, as I hope we did this morning as well in Sunday school, that we need to know more about heaven. To, to think about it. That's where our citizenship lies. We're ambassadors here. Thus we need to know, again, the hope of his calling, as the Apostle Paul prayed. We need to know the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints. This is it. So when you die, where do you go? To heaven, to a city built by God, which is one big diamond. And in that diamond, if it's true, you have a room made for you. That sound good? So I want you to think about heaven this week. Think about heaven. Are you encouraged? I hope so. Let's pray, and we'll close the song, and then um, five minutes will go, and we'll have a uh, annual meeting. Lord, as we stand with you this morning to sing this last song, we thank you. You are so generous, and we, we take the time to study and learn these things. It's just overwhelming. It was just so satisfying for me to see everyone's face when they saw the size of this city. And that's just a part of the new heaven and the new earth. That is our home. Thank you for your generosity your grace and your kindness. 
and all God's people said, Amen.